0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. This episode I'm starting a new series that I'm going to call Forensics for Crime Writers. And the purpose of this is to kind of walk through the world of forensic science and kind of help explain to writers out there how to use this forensic science in their stories. In other words, make it understandable, make it usable, make it accessible, so that you can get the the science right in your story, as well as understanding about how forensic science actually works in the real world. Uh, it doesn't really matter what genre you're writing in. This obviously is geared toward crime writers. But even if you're writing historical fiction, or you're writing cozies. You need to know what is available in the criminal investigation world because you don't want to stub your toe. You can't just completely ignore things, even though you may not dwell on them in your story. So let's begin uh, by talking briefly just what does forensics mean. Well, it really means of the law. So if you're looking at forensic science uh, a discipline, how does it different from medical science or other science is that it is filtered through the eye of the law. In other words, through the legal system, the medical legal system. If you look at uh, clinical pharmacology, that's dealing with uh, patients and drugs, and when they come in the hospital testing blood levels, getting therapeutic levels of drugs, you've probably gone and gotten a level of, of something uh, as a blood test. Let's say you're taking digitalis. They send you to the lab to get a, get a lab test to determine what the level of that is. That's all clinical pharmacology. Uh, Forensic toxicology is really the same science. It's looking at the same molecules, the same drugs, the same everything, but it's looking at it from the point of view does this have a criminal component? Does this affect the behavior of a person, the death of a person, uh, an accident, an accident. A simple thing is uh, a breathalyzer test if you wreck your car, they're going to find out if alcohol was involved in the in the accident. And are you culpable from that point of view? Hopefully not, but it happens. So forensics is an old, old, old term, even though the science is very new. It comes from the Roman forum. And that root word is where we got forensics. Forum led to forensics. What is that? Well, the forum was where people met in the old Roman villages. It would be the town square, if you will. And they would sit there and they would, you know, converse with one another, they would exchange ideas, they would have political arguments, they would buy and sell stuff, so it was a marketplace also. Oh, and by the way, they also performed uh, trials there, so they were public trials. So it became a, a legal location, if you will, for where trials were taken. Were, were t- uh, place and people would be tried and convicted or acquitted or whatever. So the forum was the place where justice was meted out. And so from all that the word forensics came. But let's look what is at the heart and soul of forensic science when you come to crime writing or you come to criminal investigations. Well it's the office of the coroner. Now, those of you who write historical fiction How far back can you go and still use the term coroner? Well, it turns out really a long way, perhaps all the way back to before the Norman invasion. It's unclear as to exactly when the term was first used, but it is mentioned as early as 871. However, it generally became accepted uh, when uh, King Richard Plantagenet, also known as Richard the Lionheart, officially created the coroner position in 1194. The term literally means crowner of the king, or the keeper of the pleas of the crown. In other words, it was involved in all things that could be criminal for the crown, for the king. It was later, much later, in 1887 that the Coroner's Act was passed, and the coroner officially existed, if you will. You've also heard the term medical examiner, or M.E. That's a more modern invention. Uh, Probably in the late 1800s, uh, France and Scotland uh, developed this position, and then it migrated to the U.S., You would think that a medical examiner was a medical professional with at least an MD degree, and hopefully a pathology degree, and hopefully a forensic pathology degree. But that's not always the case, as we will see. Sometimes these uh, guys are just no different than, uh, than the coroner, and we will see almost anyone can be a coroner. First, let's look at what the coroner is. Judges, in general, are of two types, non-inquisitional and inquisitional. Now, under English law, which we adopted in the U.S., they're non-inquisitional. And what that means is the judge sits over the trial. He will control the uh, evidence input from both sides. He will lay down the law, if you will, if people are acting up or stepping out of bounds. But he does not actually go out and investigate crimes. He doesn't go gather evidence. He doesn't bring evidence into the courtroom or uh, in, in any manner investigates the crime. He simply is the trier of the facts that are brought before him and then tries to apply them to the law as best can be done. An inquisitional judge, like they have in Spain and Russia and other places, actually takes involve, uh, involvement in the uh, crime investigation itself. They will go out and go to crime scenes and talk to people and you know interview witnesses and suspects and uh, look at the evidence and gather the evidence and all of that stuff. It's very inquisitional. What this means is they have a lot of power. And lo and behold, the coroner, has that power. He is more or less an inquisitional judge. The coroner can subpoena evidence. He can force people to come before him and testify. Uh, So he has a great deal of power. Now, this power is derived through the court, but the court pretty much supports the coroner whenever he wants something. So in other words, if there's a suspect and he sees something unusual in a crime and he wants to talk to this person, he can subpoena them and have them brought before him. And you've heard of coroner inquisitions, and that's kind of what it is. They bring all the evidence in before, and the coroner kind of oversees all of it and says, hey, you know, we want to submit this to a a grand jury to see if we can get an indictment, or maybe the police will take that evidence and the district attorney will get an indictment. But the point is, is that the coroner can be very inquisitional. So let's talk about the coroner or medical examiner in your story, which would it be? Would you have a coroner or would you have a medical examiner in your story? Well, location, location, location. This position is a county level position. So it means that every county, theoretically, in the country, has its own coroner. Now, that's not true because it's expensive, and a lot of counties will get together and have their own coroner, or a state will have a state coroner level, and some counties would just defer to that. But it is a county position, and each county can decide whether if it's going to use a coroner or a medical examiner. Now, you would, again, think that these were two different terms, but they're almost almost, uh, interchangeable. In fact, they are interchangeable. Just because they call one a medical examiner and that's a more elevated term, if you will, than coroner, it doesn't mean that they're any different. So how are these people get these positions? Well, they're appointed or they're elected. That's pretty much it. If they are elected then they run for office like the sheriff and many other positions within the county and whoever gets the most vote gets the job. Or, if the county commission appoints them, then the county commission decides of the candidates which one they're going to appoint to be the coroner. Okay, so it can go either way, and it varies from county to county. So what does most jurisdictions require for someone to be a coroner? Well, you have to be of a certain age, maybe. You have to not have a criminal record, maybe. You have to live within the county, maybe. There's a lot of maybes there because each county can do what they want. There have even been situations where teenagers, high schoolers, have been appointed to the county uh, coroner position. It's funny, but it's real. It happens. So, bottom line is there are no real qualifications to be the coroner, which really adds great leeway in you in telling your story. Because let's say you have a teenager or say you have an alcoholic or you have a a, an incompetent ass, you know, (laughs) that's your county coroner, or someone who is corrupt, who is uh, who is on the dole, who is being bribed by some criminal organization or some criminal or being threatened. I mean all of these things come into play because these people are just regular people. Remember, Floyd the Barber could have been the coroner of Mayberry. All he had to do was either be elected or appointed depending on how the county Mayberry set in ran their business. So you can see a lot going on there. So whether it's a medical examiner or a coroner depends upon the county where your story takes place. So do a little research. All you got to do is Google the county and go there and look at the county commission, look at the coroner's office, look at the police department, the sheriff's department, whatever. You will find the officers, and you will see that they have a coroner system or a medical examiner system. But the point is, is that the coroner or medical examiner does not have to be a physician, a pathologist, or a forensic pathologist. Often, in smaller jurisdictions, it's the undertaker, the guy who runs the funeral home. Why is that? Well, they're used to handling dead bodies, and people don't like to handle dead bodies, but the undertaker is very good at that. He's also seen a lot of dead bodies. So he can say, well, this looks like you know, a gunshot wound, or this looks like head trauma from an auto accident. And he will you know, determine the cause of death and sign the death certificate, and life will go on. That doesn't mean he's correct, and it doesn't mean that this is the right way to do it, but that is the way it is done. So you need to research the county that you've set your story in. And if you even created a county, kind of go to the state and see how many counties have medical examiners, how many have coroners, and then kind of tailor it to that. Or at the end of the day, you can do what you want to do, as long as the story is believable. But do some research on that. Many years ago, I spent time over at uh, the Clark County coroner's office. This will give you an example of what I'm talking about. Now, Clark County is where Las Vegas is. And I spent an afternoon with the coroner over there. He was a great guy, just wonderful. And we saw everything the lab had to offer and talked for hours. It was a great visit. But he was not a medical doctor. In fact, he was a homicide detective for many, many years, I think two or three decades. And then he ended up getting the coroner position. Well, you know, he's got to make all these medical legal decisions, but he's not qualified to do that. But he had three associate coroners that would that were all forensic pathologists, and they did all the medical work. And at the end of the day, he did the work of the coroner. So the point being is that the coroner does not have to be the medical professional that you see on TV. It can be anyone. So I think you can see the storytelling implications here. Again, Floyd the barber. So what does the coroner actually do? You know, we know, we see him doing autopsies and doing all this stuff, but but what does he really do? He really does so much more than that. And you need to know this for your storytelling because the coroner may be involved in any one of these things. First of all, he's got to determine the cause and manner of death. Now, I'm going to do a different... a podcast on those on those issues later and kind of f- flesh this out for you so you can know a little bit more about this but the cause of death is what killed the person and the manner of death is by whose hand and what for what purpose there are five manners of death accidental suicidal homicidal natural or i don't know sometimes you can't tell you just don't know so the coroner has to determine that Well, that's so important because let's say he says it's natural. You know, that Grandpa died in the nursing home. They didn't smother him with a pillow to get his money. He died, you know, because he's old and frail. Well, that means there's no criminal case if it's natural or if it's accidental unless it becomes like, say, an industrial accident or he falls and hits his head in a grocery store and there's a lawsuit following, something like that. Uh, if it's suicidal, usually that does not bring about criminal charges either, but it may be investigated by an insurance company if they have a clause that says something like uh, suicidal deaths, they're not covered, and the family may sue, and now the insurance company is defending its money, and they're going to get uh their guys on board and they're going to start investigating this and say, no, he was killed by somebody. Or they're going to say, no, it was suicide when they say it was homicide. Well, you can see the conflict that goes on here. Each side's going to say it's this or that, and they're going to argue about it. But usually, criminal investigations don't follow up unless it's determined homicidal. So right off the bat, the coroner or medical examiner decides whether there's going to be a criminal investigation or not. Just from Jump Street. So that's a huge decision. Then he'll also determine the time of death as best he can. This is called the estimated time of death because that's what it is. I'll talk about that in a later podcast in more detail too. But this is critically important because the time the person died will determine who has an alibi and who doesn't, who is at that location and who wasn't. Um, If a husband comes home at six o'clock at night and finds his wife dead and says that she was fine when he left home at eight o'clock in the morning and the time of death is determined to be, you know, between one and three in the afternoon. And, you know, he was, uh, you know, 50 miles away in his office. Fine. But what if the time of death is between six and nine AM? Well, He was there. So now he becomes a suspect. So the time of death is critically important. Now he will also, the the coroner will, it will supervise the collection of, um, of evidence around a body. Let's say there's a murder case and someone's found in a home in a living room and they've been murdered. Well, the police control the crime scene and the crime scene investigators and the forensic people will control the crime scene. But the body belongs to the coroner. Now, ideally, the police that first arrive on the scene and all that will protect the scene, and they will not disturb the body. Well, that said, there are certain things that they have to do. First, they have to make sure that the person's really dead. So if they go over and check the person for a pulse and find out that they're cold and stiff and they've been dead for hours, that's one thing. They may reach into the pocket and pull out a wallet, even though that's controversial. But they should, because identifying the victim early on is critical in any criminal investigation. Time is money in this circumstance. So they, the coroner controls the body. And so the coroner or a coroner's tech usually will come to the scene, look at the body, do their photographs, gather any trace evidence off the body that the, that's going to be loose and fall, fall away, then they will bag the body, tag the body, and take the body back to the uh, to the coroner's office uh, for the autopsy and the, the post-mortem examination. So the body belongs to the coroner. So they're responsible for the body and all the evidence that is attached to it, if you will. They also coroner may be called in to identify unknown corpses, or even skeletal remains. In this latter situation, they may be called in a forensic anthropologist to help with this. They'll determine any contributory factors to the death. In other words, was the person intoxicated? Were there drugs involved? So he's got to do all that studying before he can determine was this person um, impaired at the time of the death, was this impairment part of the time of the death, things like that. He has to certify the death certificate. Now, I've practiced cardiology for 50 years. I've signed a lot of death certificates. And normally, you put down the immediate cause of death and all the contributing factors, such as it may be a cardiac arrhythmia due to a heart attack, due to coronary artery disease, with complicating things like pneumonia and diabetes, something like that. Okay, but the cause of death was a cardiac arrest. And I signed the certificate and the coroner has to sign off on that. You know, and they rubber stamp it all the time, unless there's something really goofy about it. And then they can launch their own investigation. Remember, they're inquisitional. Sometimes you don't sign a death certificate because you're not sure why the person died. But well, that becomes what we call a coroner's case. This is true of someone who's brought to the ER and dies immediately, or sometimes dies within 24 hours of admission to the hospital, or sometimes dies during some procedure, a surgical procedure or an invasive procedure of some type. These will more likely become coroner's cases, and the coroner will get involved on some level. Um, it this varies from jurisdiction to jurisdiction but that happens but the coroner is involved in all of this he may also examine living people for their injuries so there may be a victim of a of a crime that survived and they had bite marks or they had certain bruises or they had certain lacerations the coroner can examine that person so that he can see the injuries firsthand and determ- determine determine to his best judgment how, where, and why these occurred. He will also go to the court and present expert testimony. Now, he may not go himself. He may have his uh, uh, crime lab techs go in there. He may have his DNA specialist. He may have his fingerprint specialist. Because remember, he oversees the crime lab in most jurisdictions, not all. But he can call these people in to testify in his behalf. But at the end of the day, he's the guy ultimately responsible for supplying this information to the judge and the jury. Now you can see that the coroner has many duties and there are many potential storytelling uh, bumps along the road that you can use for your story. First off as I said the coroner is either appointed or elected and he really has very few qualifications for that job. I think you can see the implications of this, as I said earlier, for him being corrupt or being bought and paid for, for him being lazy, for him being uh, involved in what's going on that he's helping to cover up for a crime that he's involved in. I think you can see all of these things are possible. But the key is, is to look at your coroner or medical examiner, determine who this person is, what type of person this is, and how they're going to play in your story. This may be something that's just background noise or it may be something that is a prominent portion of your story. But just number one, understand what the coroner does. Understand that that person has to determine the cause, manner, and time of death and how critical that is. And Determine whether if they're a coroner or a medical examiner, depending on the location of your story. And then get on with your story. Now, I will have on my uh, blog uh, some show notes for this show. And there's a link to that here. And you can go over there and read the show notes and a couple of of, uh, links. If you want to know more about this, and this will be true of all the podcast in this series, you can always go buy a copy of my book, Forensics for Dummies, or How Done It Forensics. They're both available in hardback, paperback, uh, and electronic formats. And you can read more about any of these topics. So this is kind of an overview of who the coroner is, how he works, and how you might be able to investigate this and use it in your story more accurately and with uh, more complications for your plot. So until next time, this has been D.P. Lyle, and I hope you have a lot of good luck crafting your story. Until next time.